Welcome to episode 97 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast made up of opinions by three allegedly intelligent-ish guys discussing our passion for Linux. Most of those guys, except for me today, are completely sick. So forgive them for anything they may utter out because they probably had too much cough syrup. Speaking of which, I'm Ryan and with me today are two of my virtual best friends in the world, Michael. How have you been? I've been great, except for today. Turns out I woke up with a sore throat, so this is going to be an interesting podcast. Yep. And Zeb, what about you, my friend? Um, well, my cold has got better, but it's decided to go to my chest, so I might end up coughing a lot tonight. But you're still here, and that shows your complete devotion to Absolutely. the podcast. Unlike unlike our friend Noah, who made the excuse of, oh, I'm so important. I got to go on a business trip and there's no Internet. So he's not with us this week, but he will be back next week. He better be Yay. back next week or else uh, to help us go through the news. So you have to deal with just us three. And Michael, what have you been up to this week, my friend? OK, a lot of stuff. Not enough voice to say it all. So um, instead... I did a lot of stuff for the OBS. We've got a lot more improvements for the overlays and the new version of the latest episode has a new uh, new design in the intro and everything. And more importantly, as I've retired the rock band mic, we need mm. I, I, it couldn't it's too important to be put into a closet. So that's true. Now it's on the shelf back here in, in its nice glory. Oh, it's live it, on yeah. forever. Yeah. So it's it, it's going to be a, it's, it's the best backup microphone ever. So it needs to be on display at all times when it's not being used. So there it really go. needs to go into like a glass encapsulation. You know, truly show it the respect that it deserves because that was the mic that launched your career. I think you, you know? have a good point there, and I might have to consider yeah. that. That's very good. Very and cool. the Rock Band mic works on Linux. That's confirmed. true too, indeed. Yes, absolutely. So does that mean we've got to go down that? Where's that road in Hollywood where they have all the stars in in the, the pavement? Walk of Fame. That's it, Rock Band mic. Yes. Yeah. We need, that will be there forever. We'll, we'll need to make that. I'll, I'll put like at the end of this episode or something, I'll put like an honorary thing in memory of the Rock Band <laughs> When we get super famous, <laughs> that's where it will go. It'll be in a museum. Yes. Michael used this before Destination Linux became the phenom that it is today. So, Zeb, what have you been up to this week besides having being sick and getting a cold in your chest? Well, as you're all aware, I recently did a 30-day um, challenge where I limited myself to one distribution. Um, and it's had, it's had an effect on me because I now just don't feel the need anymore to keep continually installing distros to my computer. So what I've done is I've finished my setup. I'm now going to stay on Peppermint, MX-17, Antigos, Fedora, and Kubuntu. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not, you're not distro hopping. You just installed every distro family just, there is. So you don't have just to. installed five. And I, and I did it because I want to see what it's like to just live with those distributions for a year. So any other distros that will be reviewed by me, I'm going to be doing in a VM. Oh, and no. You're, you're going to be one of those VMers. Well, I'm going to, it's going to give me a look and feel. It, it, the VM yeah. never really gives you a true reflection of what the distribution is capable of. 
just what it looks like and and you know a general yeah, you don't get the true enjoyment of trying to install it and it not working when you use the virtual <laughs> yeah it'd virtual be like more like an overview it. or a first look or something yeah, yeah well, that's go. why i'm sticking with these five because they all just installed out of the box next that's what you great. need zeb is a second computer that you distro hop on with the new amd rx 590 in it and then you would be set and you would be rocking my friend Get to it. Send it me then. <laughs> All right. Well, I, it's in the mail, Zeb. It's in the mail. Okay. Speaking of mail, we got a new email this week. A really, really awesome email. Zeb, will you do the honors of reading that for us? I certainly will. It comes from Ross of Long Island, New York. And he says, hi, guys. I just wanted to express my admiration and respect for all of you and what you bring to the Linux and open source communities. Whenever an episode of your show pops up on my podcast app, I instantly add it to the top of the playlist. Nice. All of you triumphantly continue to deliver such great content through hard work and dedication while honoring the original vision put forth by Rob and Rocco. Now with the inclusion of the incomparable Noah wow. added to your roster, I can only express my enthusiasm using the immortal words of Michael. Wow. Oh, sorry. Wow. Yeah. Not, you not, nailed it, the first voice. Yeah, that's the that's accurate so for today. For let, <laughs> yeah. So thanks so much for letting your fans ride along your journey towards all things Linux. Kind regards. And then he goes on to say, P.S. I regrettably have not committed to joining your list of patron donors only because I've had some bad luck lately. Losing my dad... And simultaneously, my job, which ended a 32-year employment career. I do, however, promise that as soon as I resume employment, Destination Linux will be receiving my financial support. At least you know you already have my respect and admiration. Um, now, I know, I know how the, the, the guy feels because um, I've, I've lost my dad, not recently, but um, I haven't had a dad for a number of years now. And I've been made redundant three times in my career and it's not fun um so i wish you all the best there ross in your uh, attempt to get another job i'm sure after with 32 years experience and um, it's only a matter of time before someone snaps up um your yeah. good work and also to point out that the the patrons we well we appreciate all of the the, the stuff that you, you help us out with and help us be able to like afford the hosting for the website and everything we we appreciate that but we're not like you know it's not like it's a a necessity or anything. So we only ask for people who uh, have extra to spare to, if they would like to do so, to do so. So it's not, absolutely. It, yeah. I think that's the key point here that your support of listening and watching the show, sending us an email, all of that stuff means the world to us. It, it helps us keep going. You know, there are times where you want to make sure, know that people out there are listening and care and appreciate the work that goes into the show. And for those that's enough. And we, uh, definitely send our uh, sympathies for losing your dad. And with regards to the job, you know, I definitely recommend joining the Destination Linux Telegram group, networking through there. A lot of those folks have networks. Uh, so depending on your skill set and things, there may be somebody who could help there. So feel free uh, if you're in that situation to join the Telegram and, and maybe mention some of your skills and see if somebody knows somebody out there that can help. Um, but thank you very, very much for sending that email to us. Absolutely. Um, and on that note, we would like you to keep sending us your emails. We do find them interesting and uh, 
they can they can lead to some good discussions sometimes so continue to do that on how you use linux and the applications that you've found to accomplish that work to comments at destinationlinux.org all right so now on to the news now this was a rather recent one that popped up <clears throat> and it was mark shuttleworth reveals that 18.04 is going to get 10 years of support now. Now, wow. Michael, I saw this kind of going through the various TTRSS news feeds we have set up and stuff, and I kept looking at it going, I didn't even click on it because I was just like, oh, it's interesting, but it's not really newsworthy. And then you put in the telegram, hey, we need to cover this. And I started looking into it, and I was like, okay, there's, this is a much bigger deal than I initially thought as far as, at least in my mind, the positioning of Ubuntu towards the server market this becomes a really important move of having for system admins, companies, and things to have 10 years of support if they move to an Ubuntu platform. Yeah, the, the main thing is that Red Hat has been known for having 10-year support, and um, Ubuntu's been wanting to like take over that position of you know the, the, the quintessential server offering. And they have managed to do a lot of uh, you know, movement there. But they, there's always been a lot of different types of industries that, you know, five years is not enough. Not in the sense of, like, they want to keep all the same software forever and, like, this really ridiculously old, like, you know, thing. But, you know, giant corporations move slowly because they have mm -hmm. to. And in this case, by moving it to 10 years, it allows them, the companies that are at that level who want to look at Ubuntu but couldn't because the five years wasn't enough, now they have the opportunity to use that and I think it's a it's a big game changer for it, and it also shows the uh, the the path that Canonical's taking with Ubuntu is like you know they're they're going for a, they're they're shooting for the stars type of thing. It's pretty apt considering he's the spaceman. Nice, nice. Yeah, well done. Uh, it's also interesting. He mentions in here that sixteen point oh four. They're also going to give a longer lifespan to past the twenty twenty one which is, like you said, just a part of that plan to provide that longer relief for server admins. Mm -hmm. And what I found interesting about this particular um, notification was that when um, Red Hat was originally touted as being bought by IBM, there, there come, along comes Mark Shuttleworth, the main competitor, being all nice and um, you know pragmatic about it, saying this is going to be a good thing for Linux and you know blah de blah de blah, and then in here he's you can see where he was coming from there, um, and the fact that he's now giving it ten years support, um, and he, he's talking here about um, Shuttleworth also mentioned that in the past two years, uh, Canonical have been getting Red Hat customers coming Ubuntu's way, namely for IoT edge computing and the machine learning. Um, and Shuttleworth also mentions he feels the re recent acquisition of IBM of Red Hat will mean more customers switching to Ubuntu. So he's gone from this nice, well done, IBM, thanks for joining the affray, to, <laughs> yeah, really, really good job, boys. You're going to be pushing all of your customers over to Ubuntu. So I found that the slight twist in his take on the whole thing was, was interesting, but let's let's face it, he is a businessman first and foremost. Well, he kind of he kind of he did kind of actually um, make a little bit of a jab when they announced it. 
So I was, thought it was. Yeah, it was. It wasn't really like it was more like you know welcome to the you know the community and everything. And IBM has been a part of the open source community for a long time, even the Linux community for a long time. But it's right. more like you know uh, welcome to like the you know the big players in the space. You know, uh, but w- wish you well, but you're not canonical. We are, so we're gonna we're gonna show you what you need to do if you want to compete at this level. And that's I think that's what he was trying to say. Yeah, and and when he talks about losing uh, Red Hat, losing some of its customers because they'll switch to Ubuntu, what he's specifically mentioning is that Ubuntu will now be the neutral company, whereas if you have somebody who's a competitor to IBM, they're not necessarily going to want to be on their competitors' backbone or servers and those type of things. So it, it's an interesting strategic move there. Of course, that doesn't always apply. But uh, the other thing that came up here that I thought was interesting is the IPO conversation. Now, I've not been in Linux as long as you guys, but I know you both have told me they've been threatening to become an IPO since the beginning of time. So <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's really, um, it, it looks like they're definitely working towards it. He said likely in 2019, but there's no set schedule in there. It'll happen whenever these internal metrics that we don't know about are met. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be a pretty exciting time when they do uh, actually make that IPO available. And I'm sure they're going to be quite competitive in that market against Red Hat there, which you know is only going to be good for the end user at the end of the day. Most of these companies, by the way, make their money off of the servers and the companies, not the users and the desktops. Right. So I have heard some people say that they have a fear that these companies will lose sight of the desktop. But I think you have to own both because once you get people used to utilizing a certain desktop environment, mm-hmm. uh, then it's going to be a natural migration as they, especially getting into the education and school systems and things like that, it's going to be a natural progression for them once they come out into their professional field, start their own businesses, those type of things. So uh, I think desktop will remain an important strategy for both. Yeah, I mean, definitely for Canonical. They've already stated that, that desktop is not, you know, any, is not going anywhere. They, they, they use the desktop to get people to, you know, uh, have like people who are doing a company enterprise structure. They could deploy the, the server, but also the desktop for the workstations. And that way they could, you know, have the entire spec. But if, true too. if uh, you know, like Fedora is not really meant to be like the state in the same way that Red Hat had the 10 year thing, um, Fedora never got that. So it's kind of like a, an interesting situation because Canonical's in a position where they're going to support the desktop and the server for 10 years. So they have like they have a, a really good uh, marketing pitch to give to p- these companies that want to have this massive support system. And I Mm -hmm. think it's, and I think it's, it it is interesting to say that, you know, the, the IPO conversation, uh, everybody has been talking about the IPO for like years, but Canonical really only started talking about it in the past couple of years. And they only were doing it because people were like asking him, are you going to do it? And he's like, we're thinking about it. It's, it's, it's a possibility. And then last year they said, yeah, we're going to do it. We don't know when we're not going to tell you when yet, but we, we are going to do it. And uh, that that started when they when they announced getting rid of Unity, and he went back to the CEO. They basically mm-hmm. said that that's when we're 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 now thinking about doing, and we're setting a, a goal to do that. And I think that once they do that, they're going to like kind of disrupt the market even more so than they already have, because Red Hat is an IPO company. Well, not obviously not an IPO company, but like they are a company that's already on the stock market. So. Um, Canonical be, being on that stage also makes it uh, even more competition, which, you know, everybody should know that competition 
is good for market for capitalism and everything. So I think this is a very good thing and I look forward to see what happens. Yeah. There you go. Definitely. Okay. So on to some um, distribution news and Sparky Linux 4.9 has been released. Uh, now Sparky is a company that do a number of different uh, releases and this particular 4.9 um, is based on the Debian stable line stretched, stretch, and it's built around the open window, open box window manager. Now, what's um, particularly appealing about this particular one is that they are really celebrating um, their country of origin, because those of you who are not aware, Sparky Linux is a Polish distribution, um, and they're actually sort of like really... Re almost naming this one Sparky Linux 100 because they're celebrating the 100 years of Polish or Poland's independence um, from the German, Austrian and Russian empires dating back to the 1918s. And they've added a whole host of um, Sparky 100 icons and um, they've got a bit in the menu there that takes you to, to the Wikipedia um, now, what was interesting for me is this was going to be my first installation that I had a look at in a VM instead. Um, so I fired up the virtual manager, installed it all perfectly well, and everything went flawlessly. Had to remind myself how to reinstall um, the special drivers that allow you to, to screen size it. And everything, I went for the minimal install because I wanted to see they've got a particular tool called Aptus. Mm. And, and what Aptus does is, is it's almost like a, a one-stop shop where you can install a whole raft of applications from about 15 to 20 different categories. But more importantly, they allow you to install any of the current desktops that are out there. And I'm talking about even the most obscure ones that you could think of. <laughs> um, so I, I installed it, went for Aptus, put XFC on top, logged out, logged back in, and everything went perfectly well. The only odd choice I thought they had was they've, they've gone with an internet browser called Otter. Um, now, I'm not sure whether that's based on Chromium, um, but it did not play the YouTube videos straight out of the box. You had the usual error message. So I thought, hang on a minute, in apt, they've got this codec section. So I went back and I installed every single codec that was in there. Some said they was already installed and some said they weren't. Rebooted it, uh -uh, still didn't work. Then I installed Ryan's favorite browser, Google, and everything worked. Boom. So what I'm saying is if they're going to pick an unusual browser choice like Otter, and believe you me, this thing flies. It is really, really quick. But please get the basics right Everybody but anybody I know will want to go and watch YouTube videos. So, so you've got to have that functionality. Just doing a brief view of Otter Online, looks like it's based on recreating some of the aspects of Opera 12 in there. And uh, yeah, it, it's, an, it's an interesting thing that you see time from time in these distributions where they pick some very um, not well-known browser as their default. Uh, obviously, you can go in and install whatever browser you want, but uh, if it was somebody's first kind of view into making an installation of Linux and they would try to use Otter and couldn't get things like YouTube and stuff working, that could be a big deal, but 
probably brand new users to Linux aren't going to start with Sparky uh, mm -hmm. Linux in the first place. I mean, it's a popular distribution. You hear about it. Um, I remember doing a video on it and I, um, I don't remember which release it was. And my video was titled Sparky Linux, lots of spark, no fire, because there were some issues with kind of how I felt. And I got a lot of people mad about me pointing out issues. Sparky's very, very popular. Like people mm -hmm. like it, really, really like it. Um, but that doesn't take away from the fact that, um, you know, it, it just wasn't for me. Uh, mm -hmm. With that being said, I'm very happy that they're still releasing. I was interested to know that they have a lot of different versions out there, including a media-based version for kind of, I guess it would be like almost an Ubuntu studio, but their website makes it really difficult to figure out. They have like a media version, a gaming version, and all these different versions, what exactly is included in them. So if you go to the download page, you just have a list of the different versions, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what are the mm -hmm. package differences or what are the differences in there? Now, I didn't spend a ton of time researching, so I'm sure someone's going to be like, it's right here on this page in this obscure location. I'm sure mm -hmm. it's there somewhere. They also but have a difference between information I would love to see them add to their website is, well, what packages are you including that I don't have to download a text file? Because there was mm -hmm. a package.txt you could download, I guess, for each one. Yeah. Um, that I could see kind of what is the goal of this, you know? Yeah. So maybe some more information would be helpful on their site. And also to confuse the matter a little bit further, they also have stable, rolling, and experimental. Mm, yeah. So depending on which type you want to go for depends on how bleeding edge uh, you've got. Because this comes with the uh, rock solid 4.9 um, Linux kernel. And, uh, you know, as a, as a distribution goes, if they can iron out that little problem, but then again... It takes two seconds to uh, to install Firefox sure. and then or right. install Google Chrome. So as a Firefox, as a Debian right distribution, yeah, as a Debian distribution that takes away some of the pain of setting up Debian, it's actually very good. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you something, Michael, because this annoyed me with Linux really early on the codec situation. Now back then, I remember people saying, "Well, it's a licensing issue." As I understand it, that licensing issue does not exist anymore, meaning all the distribution, most of the distributions now will have the codecs installed by default. They'll have an option for you to either do it upon initial install or, you know, whatever. You just check a box, you accept the risk. What is so difficult with making sure for them codecs are in there? Is there still a licensing issue adding these codecs that would allow you to do basic things like, I don't know, play a YouTube video into a browser? Well, the difference between um, the the YouTube thing is weird because they shouldn't have a problem like that. Uh, the Otter browser is an interesting choice because they have the, I mean, it is still in beta and it's uh, based on the old version of, of um, Opera before they went to the Chromium base. So they're kind of like trying to keep that version alive and a lot of people did like the opera of the back in the day but right um it's 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 kind of like they they have a lot of work ahead of them because the codex issue is also an issue where they have to build that implementation to make those codecs work now as far as the licensing goes for codex yes that is a problem and it will always be a problem Mainly, so it's still an issue to this day. Yeah, well, no, not necessarily. What you said okay. is partially true in the sense of it's not necessarily a problem because they've mitigated in some ways. So the reason why it's a problem in the licensing is because they're not allowed to have the codecs built by default into the system. 
they are allowed to have a checkbox where it's manually chosen to add it. So that's what creates this problem is that they legally, and they technically could legally do it. The issue is they could have massive backlash that they've no, no one's really tested to see if it's worth attacking them or not. So if a big, a big distribution that's funded by something like Canonical or Red Hat were to do it, they would have, you know, they might potentially get a, a big lawsuit against them. And the best way to just to mitigate that is to have a checkbox that provides the same benefit without having to worry about the legal aspects. And it's also because there's a, the multi-country uh, patent system and licensing mm. structure is like different, you know, it's different for everyone. And for the fact that a lot of people who work for Canonical are in, are in various different countries and, you know, it's it's just a complicated issue where they could just solve it without having to worry about just do the checkbox. So, so you didn't see a checkbox there, Zeb, when you were installing it to install Codex? No, not at all. There, there isn't one there because Aptus has that whole codec section. Um, and in there, as you're installing it, 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 there is a little tick box that says, please be aware that this, you know, you are happy that you are installing it for your region. Okay, so, so you I'm have sure. to install the operating system, then you have to open Aptus, then you have to go check the box to install the codex. Yeah, and if you weren't aware of Aptus... During install, do you want to install the codex too got it yeah but if you didn't know the distribution you wouldn't know what aptus was it's not an obvious name gotcha that makes sense it also it it really depends on whether like this might be a beginner user distro for people who in poland they might look at it as uh, they've already you know translated for my language they might in that way they might use it so in that case i think it does matter that the, the the initial offerings are solid or at least like you know they provide the fundamentals that people expect but overall i think that you know it is kind of feels like a an enthusiast because they push more of the rolling version anyway all right all right what else do we have michael well uh next up is void linux and they released their newest their newest iso image and if you've never heard of void linux void linux is a a very interesting distribution uh, but one of the things that was like they were big in the news in the past few months, mainly because the uh, the guy who started Void Linux and was the main te- maintainer for it, uh, he just kind of vanished. And they, yeah, so they met, they put a blog post in May, I think it was May, uh, and they said that uh, they they hadn't talked to him for a couple months and we, they haven't they didn't have access and control over like the forum or the IRC or the domain or all kinds of stuff. Now, what's really good is that this is a the latest release has addressed a, a bunch of updates to the core system, but at the same time, they're basically back. So all of that, all those issues are gone now. They still have a little bit of issue with the forum, but for the most part, they can just replace that with another forum. And it's not so the individual who was the one of the founding members is, is still gone. He's still gone. They, yeah, they've re, they've gained access back to kind of uh, control of right. The distribution. I'm not sure how they gained back to everything, but for example, like with IRC and Freenode, they just went to the Freenode developers and told, or like the support team and told them what was going on, and the Freenode helped them fix it up. So now this is particularly a difficult issue for them because they're a completely independent distribution. They're not based on Debian. They're not mm-hmm. based on you know some other distro like a lot are. They right. built this kind of from scratch. So. Uh, it's it's a big undertaking here for Void Linux. Yeah, exactly. And they they've done a lot of a lot of interesting work, and it's, it was kind of like, 
you know, were people worried about what well, they were going to just going to go away because they didn't have the, uh, the the main developer anymore. But you know, actually, like thankfully, they were able to get all the you know the domain access and everything. So everything's back to normal essentially for the core team. They still have some issues with some like redirect issues with the old domain because they replaced the the old domain with a new one. Uh, but for the majority of the time, it's it's pretty much back to you know status quo, and they're just updating the you know a lot of their uh, latest versions of their DEs and window managers and stuff. So it's really nice to see that's back. Yeah, and this is a rolling release, so a lot of people love the rolling releases, staying on the latest and greatest. You have a ton of desktop options here: Enlightenment, Cinnamon, Mate, XFC, LXD, LXQT. It also runs on ARM-based devices and has a whole list of the various ARM-based devices from Raspberry Pis to BeagleBone and all of the different QB boards and stuff. So some of them I didn't even know. Odroid, U2, U3, all these different devices that it can run on. So that's kind of unique. But I'm really curious about the fact that you can run Void Linux in the cloud. So you can upload images for Google Cloud Platform that are compatible with Google's free tier. So essentially... Is this any different than other distros? Could you couldn't you run most distros from? Because when they say cloud, I initially thought, you know, Google Storage or something. But they're literally talking about Google's cloud server services. I mean, couldn't you pretty much run Ubuntu or any of the others yeah. in the cloud? I mean, what makes that different there? I think they're just saying that it's possible rather than it's different. okay because a lot of people mm -hmm. like. There are a lot of distros that are not server-ready or cloud-ready because they're not optimized enough, and I guess they're just saying that it's optimized that you could do it. Because the other one's maybe too heavy, something like that, yeah. maybe. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So, very cool. Well, I was going to say, what I found particularly noteworthy, is, and you've just gone over those two main items, is that even though this is the community who has taken back over the, the development of a void, they didn't just stick to one desktop environment. Now, I don't know if that's a testament to the way Void is built and packaged, or whether it was a testament to their knowledge and experience, but to be able to take over distribution and then still give people that plethora of desktops to use and the ARM-based projects, that's an awful lot of work to, to, to take on board. So, you know, kudos to the, to the Void management team now. That's, that's superb what they've been able to do, I think. I agree. And, you know, I just have a lot more, you know, um, I guess you're going to get my attention a lot more with the distribution where they build it from scratch versus being based on some of some other groups work. Cause there's just so many distributions, like hundreds and hundreds that are based on, based on, they make a minor little change and they call themselves a new distro. And I'm just kind of like not as excited about that stuff anymore. Um, but these guys have built their own package manager. They've built their own, uh, you know, independent distribution from scratch. And I think it deserves some attention for that alone because they're not just kind of adding a couple little tweaks and changes and calling it their own distribution like a lot of others are. Not that nothing's necessarily wrong with that. It's just a lot more talent goes into creating something like this, I think. All right, so we also have another unique distro out here called Kane 10.0, Infinity, and it is out now. So their 10.0 version, their nicknaming Infinity is out. And this caught my attention because it's utilized for a very specific purpose in computer-aided investigative forensics. 
So if you are involved in forensics in any way or want to do forensics, this is the operating system for you. It's Kane, uh, so C-A-I-N-E, and they have a new version out with a bunch of new forensic tools and environments. They This looks very much, um, I was thinking Parrot Linux, but also uh, what's the one that's in the, what's the, the one they use for hacking all the time? Uh, Kali. Friendly hacking. Kali. Kali, yeah. So Kali. this reminds me of how they've taken, it looks like very advanced tools and put a very uh, simplistic GUI interface uh, up for you to be able to interact with some of those tools. So user-friendly, taking these very advanced tools and making them user-friendly. Um, and it allows you to do some pretty cool things in here that we can get into. But Zeb or Michael, has this one ever hit your radar before? Yeah, I've seen it a few times. Um, it's it's a very I've never tried it because I don't do forensic, but it's a very interesting distribution because there's a lot of distributions that are specific for certain types of industries and stuff like that because it allows them to offer like an embedded appliance type distro and be perfectly for what they need to use it for, like in a lab or something. So this is yeah. really cool because it um, it adds a lot of interesting tools that I didn't even know existed for Linux, like an autopsy tool. I mean, that's I, so cool. I don't have a need for that, but it's really cool that it exists. So, you know, overall, I think it's, it's really awesome that this exists. And if you're able to, you should definitely check out Kane. Mm -hmm. I've seen the name around, but because of what it is, just like Carly, I've never bothered to um, install it because... M 99.9% .9 of it would go straight over my head. I wouldn't have a clue how to how to use any of the tools that are in there. So, yeah, seen it around, and uh, but no, I won't be installing it anytime soon. Well, they've got a GUI that pulls things, and in the GUI you have options like check the browser history, cache views, cookie views, download views. Then they had a tool called iPhone Tools, password recovery, data recovery, log viewers, all this just on a GUI, so I assume... You know, you could plug in drives in here and be able to run this uh, against them to pull different data and things off of that. Uh, additionally, they have fixed some of the issues with the read-only mode, uh, so it doesn't accidentally write any data once you, you know, are messing with that drive. So it basically keeps the data uh, just as it is as you're running these forensics That's on good. it. Um, very, very cool stuff. And the, and the thing that I liked as well is that it's NVMe ready. So now if you have a newer NVMe drive, you can run these forensics on that as well. So this could be another alternative for data recovery and things like that yeah. possibly mm -hmm. as well. It seems like a, it could be a really powerful rescue CD type thing. Yeah. So Kane, very cool stuff. Really was intrigued by that. So go check that out. Now, this is more of me just, you know, the prophecies that I've put out there coming true. Um, since our friend Zeb loves Google products so much, I put this in here, especially for you, Zeb, uh, Google loses control of several million IP addresses. So this was a really interesting occurrence that happened earlier in the week. Um, on Monday, they lost control of several million of their IP addresses. They all got routed to basically China. So everyone's traffic for the time that this outage took place was going through China. Now, funny enough, I had major issues on Monday getting to Google services. Um, so I assume after I saw this come out later that this is what was related to it. Yep, um, and uh, it, it's a very interesting occurrence because what happened is 
one cable company basically sent an update to tables to the internet's global routing system, improperly declaring a path. And China's telecom accepted the route and then announced it worldwide. Is it really that easy to break the internet? Yeah. It would seem one tiny ISP makes a mistake and everyone just broadcasts it without any checks. It's not the first time it's happened. So yeah, it totally, it could happen. It also depends on what they're like in this case, this is more of a, a company trying to declare they're faster than everybody else in their area, but screwing up and saying that they're faster than everyone. And then it forces everybody else to go to have issues. Cause it's like, they're, it's, they're only faster for a certain specific area. But there's also been cases where, um, like just a couple weeks ago, the same thing happened to YouTube. Like YouTube was down for like three or four hours on on a Sunday, and it was just because one company in one country said it was the fastest route for everyone in the world, and it wasn't. So it just started like you know, getting up like these uh, 500 errors and stuff. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So could could this be then that this could have happened to? anybody not just google it just so happens that it was their 212 range yeah it could it could happen to anyone any big uh, organization has a lot of ips uh, mainly it wouldn't happen to small ones because there's uh they're trying they're competing over who gets the traffic type of thing whereas mm-hmm. on smaller ip companies who only have like one ip or something like that they're probably not going to be affected by it at all but it is yeah. it is so this is not really google's fault ryan is it yes because it's, <laughs> it's always Google's fault. I find it interesting that basically one ISP can make a change to a table and get it completely moved across the entire worldwide internet and accepted mm-hmm. and break everything related to those services out there. I find that to be astounding that it's that simple it seems like something that's just meant to be hacked at some point. Well, it wouldn't um, break anything. It would just kind of like, it's just like a denial. Of slow everything up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, just, it wouldn't hurt the actual servers and it wouldn't except mess up. You're sending all your private information through China servers, right? Mm. Which we know have a lot of nanny stuff on them. It depends on how, how encrypted the, the services are from Google, which is like, who knows? I don't know. That would be hilarious, especially considering that, that doesn't happen. The latest, the latest version of Google's services require JavaScript to log in. So if <laughs> yeah. there should and be I, issues there too. Yeah, I think the China thing is not that China decided to take it over, just that they accepted the change and then propagated it. And because it's such a huge um, country, that probably helped in it spreading quickly around the world because yeah. you know one little isp in nigeria is not going to be able to reach billions of people but the, the main chinese with all of their billions of internet users and connections could then as i say propagate it that much quicker so i don't think it was anything nefarious that no China it was just did. a mistake that well, that's what some people are, are putting on their tinfoil hats and saying, is this a test? Was this was there something going on behind the scenes? Because Cloudflare also got hit the same day uh, with almost an identical situation that took place. So we've been on the Internet for a while. Like Michael said, this may have happened before, but yeah. it's kind of strange that two major companies routing traffic both had a similar impact here. 
And I could well, see why people are starting to speculate, you know, maybe something's going on. Maybe this was a test. We know the, the countries are attacking each other with cyber attacks all the time. Was this some type of way of saying, could you shut down the Internet? I mm-hmm. think I think we should do. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and give you some information about. Oh, Michael knows. Uh, well, nice. this is you know to ease your your mind about. I did say it was me. I'm not saying you. I'm saying the, the audience, that. the audience yeah, that might okay, be watching okay. it, to ease your mind about the tinfoil hat, whether you need one or not. Okay. Um, no, because we've already seen it happen before, so you don't have to worry about this being a test of something like that. But at the same time, feel free to put seven tinfoil hats back on because the infrastructure of most of this of country, most countries in the world are not very good and the fact that they were saying like there's more and more power plants are being put onto the internet for the to save like the iot stuff which is usually terrible so yeah it's probably not they're it's this is probably just an a simple mistake but eh, it could be bad in general for other reasons because there's it all shows a major vulnerability one little tiny right. isp Makes one little tiny table update. I mean, it happened a couple talks. weeks ago too. So, like, yeah. this is not going to. This is not going to be the last time it happens. And I and I think that it could be bad, but that's also because the the internet is like an infrastructure of like random pieces thrown back and forth and stuff. So, it, it's a very complicated machine that there are many cogs that could be messed up. So, I think that it is fair to say that this could ha- this is probably going to happen again, but I don't think it's a nefarious thing from By the way, the proper people. answer is never take off your tinfoil hat. You're never you should never <laughs> take off your tinfoil hat. Well, I don't I refuse to put awesome one on, it messes up my hair. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you could put the <laughs> you put the foils in your hair when you're dyeing it. How dare you. Yeah. Okay, so while um Ryan has now donned his um, tinfoil hat for us. Wait, are you saying something's changed? I don't think anything's changed. I (laughs) I think that's because there is yet another Facebook vulnerability. So here we go again with another Facebook vulnerability uncovered. This time, the security company Imperva released details on a vulnerability that exposed users' data. Basically, websites could obtain private information about Facebook users and their friends via unauthorized means using the company's API by manipulating behavior in the Chrome browser. So this bug has been resolved as of May, but that doesn't remove the fact that data could have been compromised. Now, it's interesting that what they don't say is how many users were exposed, but I'm guessing it's got to be every single user of Facebook. Or is it specific to just the Chrome browser? So if you were on uh, Firefox, were you secured? Well, the way the attack works is they, the user would have to go to a malicious website with Chrome browser, Zeb. Chrome browser, specifically, mm-hmm. click anywhere on the site while logged into Facebook and it basically has the ability. So you know how Facebook likes to kind of track you once you log mm-hmm. in, you kind of stay logged in and it, it utilizes that to extract personal information. They don't know how many people or if anybody was, we know the data was exposed, but we don't know if anybody was got by it. I'm sure they were. They probably um, I did the video on this already telling everybody, if you're still using Facebook, you're a fool. Maybe the exception is if you have a business and you absolutely have to, but Facebook is just an absolute pile of human garbage. 
and should be removed from everybody's life. It is not that important to be worth. I think that really hat has changed you a little bit. This hat has not changed. I'm telling you, people use Facebook are fools. You're foolish. Okay. So, so a question then about this website that you're meant to have visited after you've been onto Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Is it a multitude of websites? Was it, it one be, it website be, that this um, company just put up? Yeah, it could be any kind of site. There's, that, this was more like we found the problem. Anybody who knew about this problem could have utilized it on their site. Right. So basically you've got to have had, let's say, 2,000 hackers out there who knew about this particular API, put it on their website innocuously, so it could have been part of Google search, could have been part of YouTube or whatever. And because you visited that site after Facebook, I'm guessing that they could then garner all of that information that Facebook harvests because they collect everywhere that you've been. Run queries against all of your personal information. Yeah. Which generally into their website. So, okay, right. let's look at this realistically. What are the chances of you happening to hit one of those websites out of the millions that are out there that had been compromised? Tons, oh. tons. The chances are obscene, but even more importantly, you think so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most people, you may have gotten to the point on the internet like me where you have specific places you go to. But there are a lot of people who just randomly go to sites, search on, click on things, click on emails that are emails that have links in them. I mean, it is, listen, it would not be so popular if this stuff, this phishing campaigns and getting people to click on fake sites and baiting them didn't work. It wouldn't be the most popular way of getting, removing fools from their data. There's even people who made made websites. There was one guy who, who showed how ridiculous people are when putting in information that he made a website that looked exactly like Twitter, except he named it Fisher, spelling like phishing attacks. And he's on the website says, if you put your information in here, it will be taken. Don't do it. Like, and they still did it because it looked like Twitter. And it, 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 the people do that all the time. And it's more of like, um, is it possible that this is not as big as people like it could be small depending on how many people go to these websites sure but the fact that it could have been on any website at all and there's no way to tell and there's really no way to tell even now um, unless you know what kind of code it is unless someone actually releases the code that show that does the vulnerability we don't really know there's the big there's so much obfuscation with JavaScript and stuff you know there's tons of stuff like that so I would say it's yeah. it's, it's definitely a high possibility that a lot of people were affected so Ryan I've got a favor to ask for then um, right. send me one of those hats <laughs> you got it man I will make you one and send it in the mail I, I do want to mention Just use in the doc place. there's a documentary everybody should watch called terms and conditions may apply I believe it is out there on Netflix right now. If you're a Netflix subscriber, you can watch it through your subscription there. But it is absolutely fascinating when one of the users in there requests his Facebook data. He'd been using Facebook, I think, for 10 years. And what he prints out is a thousand pages of what Facebook has captured on him. One th- over a thousand pages of data. Now, your spouse or your parents... Do you think the people you think are closest to you, do you think they could write a thousand pages about you that they would know that much? Probably not. But Facebook does because it's not just Facebook and what they know about you. It's every affiliate site that they have that allow these, by the way, these attacks to take place. 
because they're using affiliate Facebook logins. They're, they have affiliates that capture uh, affiliate services for social media like not Instagram even, and other things. Not even that. Just by having a like button on your website. Then they're tracking you. Yep. So this whole system Facebook has set up to me is an absolute privacy disaster. And I am shocked to this day to find out Linux people of all people, you are the chosen ones still have Facebook accounts out there unless it's for a business in which then you better containerize it in Firefox. Yeah. Get the, forget the Facebook container because Firefox allows you to like force Facebook but that's not a that's not it. a hundred percent fix. It just it, helps. it solves if you use Facebook, it solves it to the fact that they if they if you leave that you leave Facebook or you leave Instagram, Facebook cannot track you because you are not logged in anywhere else other than that container. So they can't track you. It does stop that. Anything you're doing on Facebook is definitely gonna track you. It's the third party stuff that it it forces to stop tracking. So with that said, uh, Facebook.com slash destination Linux. Stop using this crap, people. <laughs> Stop using this crap. Oh, my goodness. Give us some good news, Michael. Um, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Okay. All right. So, the Raptor Blackbird motherboard has been released. Oh, and did I mention it's an open source motherboard? Ooh. Very cool. Yeah, and a lot of people have said that you know, motherboards can't be open sourced, and there you go. There's an example of where you totally can't be. And uh, the Blackbird is from the Raptor Computing Systems. It's a micro ATX Power 9 motherboard, which Power 9 is from the uh, IBM. And uh, there's a lot of th- a lot of really cool things about it. Uh, but, Ryan, you probably know more about this. And also, my throat is starting to hurt, so you, you go ahead and... <laughs> well, I, I will take it from here. I actually don't know a lot about this because I haven't been able to get my hands on it, mostly because it is quite expensive still to get these type of boards, but it is cool seeing them start to come out. So the Blackbird from Raptor Computing Systems is a micro ATX, so micro ATX form factor, Power 9 motherboard. So you get the IBM Power 9 CPU, you get this motherboard here. They basically put a pull out on a straw pull on their website asking how much interest would there be for an $875 motherboard because that's what it's going to cost them. Um, which seems really unwieldy to most of us. But keep in mind, this is likely not intended for most normal users. This is more meant for companies and networks and servers and those type of use cases out there. But Mm -hmm. I, I did have to kind of laugh at some of the critiques I had heard about System 76, why they weren't utilizing the Power9 platform in their new systems out there when I looked at the prices of the motherboards and CPUs, like, of course they didn't put these things in there. Were they going to have a uh, $4,000 computer sitting there? So I'm mm-hmm. happy to see the prices are coming down because there are other options in there that are way more expensive for open source motherboard uh, from the same company. This is actually, I think, close to four or $500 cheaper than the other alternative that was out there. So it's cool that we're starting to see this. And obviously, if it gains popularity, it'll eventually get to the price point where you and I will be able to pick one up without our spouses killing us. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that could be a good thing as well. I look forward to that day. So, so is this just then 
another type of motherboard that happens to have a particular processor and there's nothing to stop you going out and buying it and building a machine based upon it with NVIDIA graphics cards and all the other bits and pieces. And it would work just as well as, let's say, an Asus motherboard. Uh, if you go and look at the motherboard, I mean, it's a micro ATX, so you've got a very small form factor. Mm-hmm. It does have a PCI 16 slot, it looks like to me. So you probably could put a GPU in it without an issue, but I only see two DIMMs uh, for the RAM on it. So, yeah, you know, I mean, it's that's not drivers for those cool cars. for a micro ATX, but you're, you're going to have to. It's, it's a micro ATX board. You're losing a lot of space and things. That doesn't mean you can't put the powerful components on it. I don't know how well I've heard that there are some, there's some work going on between power nine and NVIDIA trying to get the cards to work a hundred percent of their capabilities. I just recall seeing that in some articles out there. So I think essentially, yes, you can use it for that, but that's not really what it's meant for uh, at least right now. So um, we were talking about the prices of their boards prior. The prices of the boards prior, like a Talus 2 was $2,400 just for the motherboard and a Talus 2 Lite was 1100 So the prices are already starting to come down. Mm-hmm. I think eventually you may see it again if the popularity is there. Uh, these come down some more and then some additional form factors like a full-size ATX motherboard uh, where you would probably be more comfortable in, in our case, Zeb, of building a machine around. Cool. Okay, well, it's good to see that this week we can get some Team Green news in because mm. um, it's normally always painted red. <laughs> so apparently NVIDIA has been working on EGL Stream backend for KDE Wayland. So my first question is, why just KDE Wayland and not Wayland? Um, so, but it goes on to say that NVIDIA hasn't been the best partners when it comes to open source support. So it's great to see any news where NVIDIA is playing ball. And, and there's the sort of caveat, well, sort of. Um, <laughs> recently, it was discovered that NVIDIA has put an engineer, Eric Kurzinger, in place to start work on EGL Streams backend for KWIN so that the NVIDIA proprietary driver will play well with KDE Wayland. So two questions. What is an EGL Stream backend? And why just KDE Wayland? Well, the the EGL streams backend is a way to um, basically do compositing through uh, Wayland, and it's basically the reason why is that there's a a management system in the kernel called the DRM, and no, it's not digital rights management. It's a completely different thing. Darn, I knew that one. And uh, the DRM. Is uh, is a is a way that that most of these uh, these software is making use of Wayland. So like Kwin has support for DRM, and GNOME does too, and AMD has support for DRM, as well as in Intel. But in, Nvidia decided that you know in their you know uh, brilliant glory. You keep saying DRM. Are you sure you don't mean GBM? Uh, it could be GBM actually. Yeah, I think it's GBM. I'm pretty sure DRM is also rel- relevant to it, and it's also part of the pieces. That, Perhaps, but it is, yeah. you you could be right that that the the graphics part is the GBM. Um, so my bad on that one. So thanks for correcting. Um, but yeah, the the EGL streams is basically just proprietary implementation of the GBM, and it's um, it's basically just saying, hey, we we don't want it. We want to use an abstraction layer, which led the KWIN team, like the main KWIN developer, outright said no 
I am not working with you. Like, I yep. don't care what you want. And uh, he actually did recently step down from being the main maintainer for K-Win. So maybe that part at least had some factor of them willing to do it or something. I don't know. But mm-hmm. uh, it is interesting that this is happening now. And I think it's... Well, as I understand it, what happened is that KDE developers said they would not invest in developing the EGL streams back in for NVIDIA, which NVIDIA basically says EGL streams is better for us in memory management and other ways than GBM is. Right. Um, so NVIDIA has taken it on themselves then because I don't think KDE, if you, hey, if they want to work on it, if NVIDIA wants to work on it, I'm sure the KDE developers don't care, but they're not yeah. going to support it. That's true. Basically. I was just pointing yeah. out the guy who said that they were not going to do it is not there, mm-hmm. but he was referring to himself. He's not going to work on it. He wasn't referring yeah. to it entirely, but it is but like the, the uh, they would need to do something for GNOME as well. But at the end of the day, it's got to be good news that finally they're beginning to realize that there's more than just Windows out there and that they need to develop these other bits and pieces for Linux. So even though it might only be a small step, it's a welcome step. Well, yeah, I don't think they have a choice at this point. AMD is <laughs> is basically putting them to shame in, in a lot of ways. NVIDIA's 2080 is a joke. I mean, even the people who are only on Windows, if you watch the videos, do not like the 2080. They don't see what it offers. I was watching videos recently of these people getting these cards, these very popular YouTube channels, and they're getting 40 frames per second with RTX turned on. So this wow. is these are a massive machine. So I think NVIDIA is in trouble, and um, they better start playing ball, especially in the server market where AMD, as we talked about last week, has start doing shots fired on their new lineup going after the server GPU market as well. And they better start playing some ball here. And the whole forcing themselves to go EGL stream uh, for device memory allocation, state management, and all of that type of stuff, saying, oh, it works better than on our cards. Well, AMD and Intel are able to make it work. You want to go the, your own path again. Great. You go support it. I'm happy they're doing that. So they're playing ball sort of because currently they still own 70% of the market of GPUs, but I think that's going to shrink. So I I think they better make some changes quick or NVIDIA is going to find themselves losing some big market share here. Uh, Because keep in mind, Intel is releasing, it's rumored to be releasing their GPU as well, not an integrated one, but an external GPU to compete with AMD and NVIDIA. So they not only have that competition chomping, they've got AMD chomping on them as well. It's certainly interesting times ahead for sure. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. I look All forward right. to AMD taking over anyway. Exactly. Who doesn't? Team Red for the win. <laughs> Team Green. Oh, geez, Seb. <laughs> All right. Neuro Slicers is coming to Linux. So this developer, Dream Harvest, has a narrative-driven online competitive cyberpunk This one's for you, Dark One, by the way, one of our patrons. RTS game, because he loves the cyberpunk genre. And it will have Linux support. So this game, when I took a look at it, reminded me very much of StarCraft. So if you've ever played StarCraft where, you know, you have these armies that you control, they go, you have some go collect resources, you start building up your different armies, and then you have them go out strategically on a map, kind of like a chess game, these different units that you manipulate and move around to take out your enemy. Very much like that, 
but imagine it instead of being on like an alien planet it's in a some cyberpunk like city and environment uh futuristic map area so this these are a lot of uh these games are a lot of fun to play uh at times so any of you ever play these type of games zeb does this pass your graphics non-pixelated test well, well, I've had a look at it, and the graphics um, are very Tron-esque from what I'm seeing here. They're yeah. very bright, bright neons. But at least you can make out, um, you know, who the characters are, what the battle stations are. They don't where look you like look gorillas. No, they don't look like little baby gorillas or whatever. <laughs> um, not quite sure what the um, – there's some sort of orchestral person giving – I don't know whether he's meant to be – moving his troops around but it looked like a bit like a go-go dancer there for the minute so that was a bit weird um, but i like the idea of it being a risk a risk type game whereby you're as you say you you send some off for foraging some people off to do the battle some other people to to defend your 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 um not risk what was that other game that the red alert that type of strategy so if it's along those lines um yeah it looks good but you know me i'm not a very huge gamer so no, it's not something that um, whets my appetite as such. So for any kids listening, a go-go is just a type of Pokemon Zeb was referencing there. And um, <laughs> we've got this game currently scheduled to be released on 2020. So we'll have to wait for this one uh, to be out there. But if you like these type of games, I think this could be a really fun game for you to play out there. Zeb. I gave you your assignment for the week and I just can't wait to get your impressions of it. Well, so the real desk geek has resurfaced to haunt me with his 1980 style games. <laughs> um, I did not play them back then, so I can't see myself starting anytime soon. Uh, but yes, if you like this genre of games, then you should definitely give Emerald Shores a go. Um, uh, they, the game is a SNES-inspired platformer. Includes SNES, I games. love it. Never heard that. What, SNES? What is it then? Super, uh, Super Nintendo. Nintendo Entertainment System. So SNES is how it's said. But oh, it, I, I like SNES. I like that. I thought it was called SNES. So, hey, yeah. In Britain, maybe it is. Yeah, so it's a SNES-inspired platformer, and it includes, includes minigames, secret levels, level up, and side quests. Um, and, and what I liked about it is that... Um, where are we? Where are we? Where are we back on my notes now? Um, yeah, you, as the intro video shows different levels to keep you entertained. And for what is, the graphics are detailed enough that you can make out who, what, and where your opponents are. Okay? So for me, yeah, this, if, if you're into this type of game, this seems to, to be able to... Because a lot of these I've always found in the past are just, you start off here... You do your bits and pieces, you end off over here. And no matter how um, difficult or complicated they make it, it's the same thing. But what I liked about this was they had different types of scenarios. Mm. Some of them where you had to race along and missed monsters on the bottom. Others you had to work out how to jump up onto the top of things. And they even looked like to be some sort of Santa's sledge at the end where you were kind of crashing down the roofs as they went down. So not just one level, but multi-level. And I think that comes out when they're talking about, um, you know, secret levels, mini games, and level up with side, side awards. So yeah, not my type of game, but seems very, very enjoyable. So really interesting because the developer of this game sent us some keys. 
so to try this game out so obviously you give me a free game i mean it's gonna it's gonna help you a little bit there because i love free free stuff and michael loves free stuff so i played the game because why wouldn't i and uh i really liked it it has you know it's it's mario like so if you are into that style of game uh you're gonna love this game so if you have some nostalgia towards that Really fun to pick up and play quickly. It's not one of those games you have to dedicate tons and tons of time to, although there's plenty of content for you to do so. They kind of added in these RPG elements to Mario, such as leveling up and things like that while you're playing. But the general idea of jumping on enemies' heads to kill them and that stuff is still there. Um, It's not out yet. It comes out November 21st. Uh, so if you like these style of games, I appreciate the developer sending us some keys so that we could properly try it out. It's not uh, out at the time of this recording. It will be out the day it, it releases. There you go. So by the time you hear this, you, you can uh, definitely pick it up. Now, some critiques that I have for the developer since he did send us the keys to try out is I could not get it to work with the Xbox controller. <clears> it looked like the pop-ups uh, that were showing up were meant for a PS4 controller. Uh, but I would definitely recommend a lot of people utilize the Xbox controller as well as the PS4 that you add Xbox controller support in there as well as adding in the ability to map your keyboard keys because because of the fact when it's telling you how to do a command through the tutorial, it's utilizing the PS4 mapping. Um, I think it's the PS4 mapping. Then it doesn't tell you what keyboards are. So I had to sit there and play with the different keys on the keyboard to figure out how to do different things. So a little bit of work in there, but again, it's not fully released yet. So hopefully he adds those details in uh, before the game releases. But overall, I mean, it was pretty good soundtrack. Definitely got a good soundtrack, decent graphics, and is got that nostalgia in it, man. Yeah, I mean. basically a classic style platformer like the Mario, but with like extra flares for modern gaming. It's a really cool idea. So I look forward to trying it out more. Unfortunately, it didn't really load for me, but that's also because I'm using like a really old system. And uh, they said that they've only tested it for Ubuntu 1804 and newer. And so that, that might be a problem because I'm using a lot of old drivers and stuff. So I am, I use arch and it worked. Oh, thanks for that. I'm glad you (laughs) let, let us know that. Uh, I did send them an email and let them know that there there's an issue and they and I'm talking with them about like logs and see if we can solve the problem so people who are using anything older uh, might be able to keep using that. Uh, but anyway, cool. it does look it loves it does look like a really cool game. So I might just you know load up an 1804 version just to play it around with it. So there I you go. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, we so, also have our software spotlight of the week, Michael. Yeah, we sure do. And uh, that this one is an interesting thing because I. Honestly, I always thought about this one as like it's always been there was was the reason to spotlight it. And then you started like explaining why like the examples for when you're moving um having to deal with all the documents and stuff. And oh I was, my gosh. Well, we actually got questions this week as well in the, I don't know if it was this week or the week prior, but in our Telegram someone was saying, "Hey, how do I interface with my scanner uh in Linux?" And I have a um what do I have now? An HP you know, multi-functional printer. And I've always used Simple Scan, even when I had an Epson 545, 545 workforce, use Simple Scan to interface with that to be able to get my scanned images off. But Simple Scan has just been something I've been using nonstop since buying a new home and selling this home because the banks send you endless 
requests <laughs> of documents that they need. And I'm talking just endless. And one of the unique things that Simple Scan does is, and you know, most programs you scan and then you could save it. And if you rescan, it's going to create a whole new page and rescan that. And then you would have to go combine them afterwards. But in Simple Scan, when you do the one scan, you can click scan again and it adds it into the same document. So then once you save, you save all of those images that you scanned at once into a single PDF or a picture format if you want, which is extraordinarily helpful. And in, in again, in my case, in selling and buying a home, when you have all these documents that are related to each other, but you just want to send them all in one file or upload one file into the banks and things like that. So it just was such a useful and well-written and simple program. I feel like if, you're, if you haven't used SimpleScan and you're going through this thing that I'm going through, check it out because it can save you a ton of time. And by the way, LibreOffice and SimpleScan have been able to do all of the documents, whether the banks in them are sending me Word documents or different spreadsheets that I need to look at. I've been in that are all from Office. I've been able to interface with all of them perfectly fine within Linux, which I think is a testament to the amazing work That's of awesome. the programs we have in yeah. Linux. That is definitely awesome. The, the uh, simple yeah. scan is a utility that has come in handy for many times for me in the past. Um, but it's really something that does deserve to get some attention because it's a, it is a very useful thing and it's probably one of the best. There's actually yep. a couple other ones um, like KDE has scan light with, you know, scan with a K and uh, it's not as good because it doesn't do that multi-page thing like uh, like SimpleScan does. Uh, but there's also another one called OpenPaper.Work, or it's actually just called Paperwork, but the website it's OpenPaper.Work. And it's an interesting one because it's it's very similar to SimpleScan, but it also has OCR functionality built built into it. So uh, that's really cool if you want to check that out. Uh, but I do think that SimpleScan is probably one of the better options. And what's really interesting is all three of these programs, as well as some other ones, um, use this backend library called Sane, or S-A-N-E, and it's like a um, scanning something now easy. I think is what it's called, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's really interesting because it just shows you the difference between how implementing a different library but in different methods can make one application so much more interesting and more useful than other ones. So anyway, hmm. that that's a uh, simple scan is something. If you if you do need to scan some documents, you should check it out. Yep. Absolutely love it. And then our tip and trick of the week is a terminal trick. So this is a new one I didn't know about before to display the output of a terminal command uh, in a column. So I work with this a lot doing data management and different servers and things needing to have things broken out into columns. So I definitely, as soon as I found this command, could see the use case for it especially within when you, you're getting a situation where you're getting lots of data uh, that you are getting back from the terminal, such as, let's say, you're looking at a file. So if you did a cat Etsy password, you could put a pipe, you know, the pipe symbol, and then column-t, and it's going to put those into a column for you. You can use this for anything. You could use it for ls, for instance, and put a pipe in the column-t, uh, ls uh, space dash l, pipe column T and it will work as well for putting things into a column. So if you are utilizing the terminal and you have lots of data uh, coming across and you need it in a more organized fa fashion, column T is column space dash T is an awesome alternative to do that with. Have you guys known about this already and just hit it from, from me? 
Not at all. Um, and as you said, <laughs> it makes it so much easier to to, to, see, to see some of the the output. Um, I'm actually going to try. I'm going to try it on DM. Is it D message or des, what's D that? Um, yep. Yeah, D message. I'm going to have a look at it on that because that is always a bit of a pain to read. So let's see if this sorts it out a bit better. But certainly on an LS minus AL. Um, it certainly tidies up the dis- display and makes things a lot more readable. Yeah. Yep. There's actually, uh, I didn't hide it. I forgot about it. <laughs> so it's totally different. Well, listen, that's our tip and trick of the week. If you guys have tips and tricks that have helped you tremendously in Linux, no matter how simple or well, if they're too advanced, probably wouldn't be good on the show. But no matter how simple <laughs> they may be or uh, you may think it's nothing, send it in to us. Because the tips and tricks, people love this section. We get lots of feedback on this, especially new and uh, experienced users hearing about things they've never used before. Some of them sound simple. Some of them are more advanced. But if you have some of those, send us in. Also, software spotlights. If there is software you absolutely love that you couldn't do your job without on Linux, uh, send it to us, and we will try to get it into our shows. i got to say that this, I'm surprised we've, this is the first time we've actually thought about asking for suggestions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Some mm. people have sent them in, but I definitely like when you guys uh, give us some of your recommendations in there. Or if you're looking for specific software, send that in too because we might be able to help you out uh, and find some that we could put in the show. So that's it. That's our episode. A big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us, no matter how you do it, whether you watch, you listen to the show, uh, support us by sending in emails for our patrons. Thank you for uh, your continued support. And hopefully we'll have Noah back next week because I know people were very excited uh, to see him on the coming show. So we'll have him back and hopefully Michael and Zeb, you both will be feeling better next week, which means I'll probably be sick because that's kind of how these things tend to work. <laughs> you got crossing my fingers so you get sick. <laughs> yeah, nice. Okay, so don't forget that we we like you to send in all of this information to us. So send your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. Um, you can also contact us via our Telegram group, Discord, Google+, Twitter, Mastodon, and a plethora of other ways that you can interact with us. And those are available on destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. Um, and we'd be particularly interested this week to find out whether or not you want Ryan to wear his tinfoil hat for every show. <laughs> what? <laughs> you said you never take it off. As well we played, Zeb. <laughs> well, also um, be sure to remember to like that smash button. And to share this show on social media. Thanks, and, Michael. Yeah, and I, I got that one perfect. Uh, <laughs> anyway, also, you should just a reminder for people who are not well, maybe people might not be aware that we all have individual channels that you should check out. So if you if you'd like to, you should check out uh, Ryan's at Dosgeek. You can go to dosgeekcommunity.com or YouTube.com/dosgeek, and also Zeb at uh, YouTube.com/zebedee or Zebedee Boss, right? Yeah, it's a big boss. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, we're also going to have links on our individual host page on the destinationlinux.org website. So you can go to destinationlinux.org slash Ryan or Zeb or Michael. And uh, also check out my content if you'd like to, uh, com, and also the Digital YouTube channel and This Week in Linux, which I might have done as, as we've reported this, or I might have woken up even more sick and then decided not to do it. So <laughs> we'll, we'll only know next week we'll you'll see. be able to we'll, we'll find out what happens all right so everybody thank you so much for watching and have a great week 
Remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.